Hello, and welcome to this, the third Envision and Real Deals fundraising podcast series. I'm your host, Nicholas Neveling, and thank you for listening. So far, the pod has hosted Advent International's Johanna Barr and EQT's Yussi Saarinen, and it is a real pleasure to introduce today's special guest, Jim Strand. Described as a private equity megabrain in industry circles and by many of his colleagues, uh, Jim is the managing director at global private markets investor Hamilton Lane and the chair of Hamilton Lane EMEA. In addition, Jim is a fellow at London Business School, a senior advisor to Bain & Company, and the chair of the HG Capital Trust. So in short, there's not much about the asset class that Jim doesn't know about. Um, Thank you for making time to join us, Jim. So much to ask you about, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. And as always, we are also joined by podcast regular uh, Munir Gwen, the founder of Envision, who has a 30-year career in private equity and more than 300 fund closers under the belt. Nice to see you again, Moose, and, and have you on, on, the, on the session. Okay, Jim, uh, just to set the scene, lots of things I'd like to ask you about today. Um, but, you know, Hamilton Lane, you have around half, uh, half a trillion dollars of assets under management and a back of, back of the napkin calculation I think that comes out at around 10% of the industry. Um, you're deploying 40 billion a year into primary, secondaries, and direct deals. So you know you'll have a real deep view of of the market and, and where things stand. So the first question um, to set the scene and kick us off: um, You know how has private equity fared through the lockdown period? How healthy is the asset class today? And you know what changes for GPs and LPs lie ahead in the years after the pandemic? Hi, well, thanks for having me on. And with an intro like that, you need to give my mother a call because we'd be delighted to hear it. Um, it's actually had quite a good crisis so far, I would say. So I think that the general sense was when, when things started to break, um, private equity took a bit of a perspective on you know, what, what it kind of thought was a base case. And that was probably something like a six to nine month period of real disruption followed by a 12 to 18 month period of something like a recovery to something that looks like normal. So I think what for many what that meant was you know, our, our, what what proportion of our companies are going to make their 19 EBITDA, 2019 EBITDA in 2022, um, and they're not all going to make it, but probably most of them are. Um, so the, they looked they looked through that lens. They did what you would have thought good private equity firms would do, which was focus on liquidity, focus on cash, create as much option value and headroom as they could triage the things as fast as possible where they thought there was going to be a you know, short-term material problem, figure out how to, this word popped up quite quickly, hibernate, figure out how to hibernate things that need to hibernate, what support could be um, garnered to allow them to hibernate, um, and, and, see, and see how it went. Uh, and obviously the, the deal market for the year was you know, an emergency stock on both sides, so it was more sort of a portfolio activity for the initial few months of COVID as they went through all of that and we certainly went through it a ridiculous amount of outreach trying to figure all this out. Um, and then as we rolled through Q1, I guess you saw um, valuations all took a dip, which is not a huge surprise. Um, but obviously unprecedented amounts of stimulus so the public markets are doing what they're doing uh, with all the stimulus. So the comparables actually were absolutely supportive. So you saw a dip in Q1 um, and then actually a bit of a bounce in Q2. Um, to get to the point where we're sort of six months in, plus or minus, we're, we're kind of broadly back to where we started, valuation-wise. Um, and that central thesis of six to nine months of real disruption followed by 12 to 18 months of something like a recovery to something that looks like normal. 
seems okay actually. I mean, like that that guesstimate of what, what people were broadly thinking might happen seems to be kind of where it's heading. If you think that you know we're, we're hopefully in twenty one we're going to see medical advances and things hopefully will begin to unlock a little further, then we're, we're going to start recovering. So I think you know this idea of twenty one is going to be a, hopefully a year of things continuing natural continuing to improve. Then um, it could be could be close to that original guess. So that's it, that's it. And then obviously the other thing that's happened is the deal markets have kind of unlocked a bit. So you've basically seen um, deals are deals are happening, um, and they tend to be a bit of a bifurcation on the deal side. It's the it's the things which are the most resilient and most robust at one end of the spectrum. So if it's software, technology, healthcare, it's in one camp. Um, things are happening. Prices are really high, higher than what they were pre-COVID, which is amazing. And then the other side is a real value play, which is a um, you know, very, very disrupted, but very, very low valuation, and you can play there. And there's this like gray zone in the middle where it, it's neither one nor the other. And what what it seems to be happening as the months are progressing is that the, the gray zone is slowly getting nibbled on on either side, um, but only slowly. So that that's what's helping the deal market. And then obviously you've seen in, in sort of broader private equity land. Um, a real bounce in secondary market activity. So that, that was emergency stop for a period of time and now it's sort of like the pins come out of the grenade and actually it's really, really busy um, for various different reasons. So that that in our world, in our team's lens, they're they're really busy. Um, and they've had a, a big turnaround in activity there. That that's probably where it seems to be at. Jim, thanks for, for setting the scene. And it certainly sounds like, despite the disruption, there has been a lot to, to be optimistic about. I mean, Moose, is that your reading? Is that the sense you're getting from, from the various LPs and GPs you, you speak to, that, that the industry has fared relatively well and, and is well positioned to, to benefit from, from a recovery, hopefully, next year? Uh, well, I'm not quite sure that the recovery is going to be next year, but uh, uh, Jim, it's a great pleasure to have you on, and Nicholas, you're always the best host. Um, let's just look at the environment. Interest rates are ridiculously low, in some countries negative. Um, economies have had cash pumped into them like we've never seen before. Um, on the GP and the private equity side, um, you know, there was a lot of pressure uh, because prior to COVID, the markets were believing that there was going to be a, a setback. And so it went to a, quite a defensive position. And the general partners became more and more operationally inclined. So when COVID hit, they were right in the right spot. They were able to adapt very quickly. They were able to uh, uh, you know, internally work with communications, video systems. Uh, they were able to communicate very clearly where they are in their portfolios. They were able to track their portfolios. They were able to control their companies. And so this whole element uh, came into effect um, very quickly. And the interesting nuance is a couple of factors that came out to lead to the points that Jim's referring to is, first of all, whatever game plan any company had for a digital transformation was accelerated. I mean, as you can see, um, you know, those individuals that are part of the tech world are the richest they've ever been or that we've ever witnessed in our lives or in our history. And so uh, this whole digitalization became very key. And one of the aspects which was interesting was how governments worked with lockdowns and what it meant to work with lockdowns. And so there was this unknown period 
March through June, July, where it was like, how, how is this going to, to work through? And um, that did impact certain economies. And interestingly enough, when we look at it from uh, you know countries' pers perspective, you know China and Chinese private equity looks pretty good. Asian private equity doesn't look that bad. When we come to Europe, Northern Europe, where the banks are all active, I think it's the only stock markets that went up. <laughs> um, I think Sweden was right, um, and um, you know those portfolios are pretty robust. And you know, when we start looking at the private equity professionals we, and they start communicating how uh, their action plans and their uh, overview plans, um, you know, they were pretty hands-on. So um, you know, the industry feels good. And um, you know, it, it, you know, we have, of course, there are unknown factors that still come out, uh, you know, COVID tests done or COVID results for important people that kind of you know, might create some concerns here and there. But I think the industry has done fantastically well. And to the point that Jim said, you know, has been able to kind of come back uh, quite in a quite healthy manner. Great, Moose, um, thanks very much. And, you know, I think that that sets the scene really nicely and, and it leads in very nicely to, to another question that I, that I wanted to put to Jim. Uh, Jim, this is kind of a broader question about LP risk appetite sort of more generally, and, and maybe this kind of predated the, the, the pandemic to, to some extent. But um, wherever you look, it seems that there's a trend that returns are, are, are trending downwards, um, that GPs are expected to keep an eye on, on downside risk as, as much as they are expected to, to be delivering alpha. Um, and I just wanted to try and get your sense of, of how the LPs sit, see the market, whether that... Um, uh, that argument that that downside risk is, is becoming more port important is uh, is a reflection of, of how you see things and you know whether it's become you know better to be a safe pair of hands rather than you know the rainmaker that's that's sort of going to knock it out the park but but might have one or two things that that go wrong you know where do LP sit on on, on risk appetite and, and what are their return expectations have they have they trended downwards as, as LPs have deployed more, more capital into the asset class? Yeah, well, I think, I think on risk, I mean, the, sorry, the, the, the great private equity is the only asset class in the world where the insiders make the liquidity decisions. So, you know, the, the, the great thing about it is um, you know, the, the, goal, the goal of the GP really is, is to um, make sure the lights stay on until the point of time when it's the optimum time to um, exit the business. And, you know, what, what, what that means is you've got this sort of very symmetric risk return profile where you know, the, the, um, the, the loss rate from private equity, particularly uh, amongst the, um, the larger, more established brands, is, uh, is actually really quite a low one. So, you know, you have this, um, you know, the, Gary Clare is a great, um, a great uh, a hero of mine. And Gary Clare would always tell you that uh, in golf, it's not how good you are when you're good, it's how good you are when you're bad. And actually, when private equity is bad, it's still pretty good. Which is, is very helpful. Uh, I mean, I think on the on the upside, um, you know, I think you've probably seen some pressure on on returns. Um, but again, it's a it's a pretty mixed picture, and it, 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 it is different in different places. So, you know, I think what what you've seen, um, you know, by things on it from different things that I do is that um, GPs are still on the journey in in operational value creation. I mean, there there's some that are are definitely better than others. And some of the returns from more recent vintages have been helped materially by multiple expansions. So the, 
you know, some of the things that I'm involved in, I mean, we, we've bought businesses at 15 times EBITDA thinking, geez, that was expensive, and we sold them at 18. Um, never, never thinking in the in our wildest dreams we'd be able to do that, but we have, and that's and that's obviously been great for for aggregate value creation. But the sort of fundamental full potential piece of taking a company and just fundamentally improving it, making it more valuable, making it more profitable, is still a bit on the come. So that that there's still more to go on that. Um, but I mean, around where LP they're at with it all, I would say, uh, well, simplistically, if if the industry wasn't meeting the needs of the investors, then they wouldn't be investing, and it continues to grow. So I'd say you know the, the private equity value proposition is still evolving in terms of its ability to create value and the returns that it comes out. But I mean, factually, it must be better than the next best alternative, or else people wouldn't be investing in it. So that it must be doing something right, um, albeit you know it's it's far from the finished article, and it's only a Really, only a thirty-year-old asset class, and you know, plus or minus. So it's, it's it's got a long, long way to go. And then the interesting thing about it now, again, for some of the stuff I'm involved in, is um, the GPs are all the well, major GPs. All I would say are trying to figure out what the next thing is. You know, how do you build a relative competitive advantage? What what is it that's going to confer a relative competitive advantage from here? Um, a lot of time and attention being spent mostly in the background, but trying to figure this out because they, they continue to want to sort of push the game on, which is good for everybody, I think. Jim, just to follow up on one thing and before we bring, bring Moose back in, from what you, you're saying, am I right to conclude that it's become harder to, to get those returns now? And, and it does sound like you need to have a lot more capability than maybe you did 10, 15 years ago. So you need the the pricing expertise, the, the digital expertise sort of on your bench if you want to create value to generate the returns because there are more people around and you can't just rely on, you know, leverage and, and arbitrage. I mean, does that sound right to you or am I sort of down the wrong, wrong track there? Uh, well, I mean, I think you know, the, 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 the premise around, you know, how, how value is created, I mean, clearly there's only three ways to do it. One is buy low, sell high. Two is be lever. Three is fundamentally grow profitability. Um, and I think what you've seen is, particularly as the industry get uh, is, is getting bigger. So if you think about the, you know, we're a six trillion dollar industry, which basically means we're the same size as BlackRock, which is again terrifying but true. Uh, but as it grows, the money flows in at the top because uh, it's sort of mathematically has to almost because of the, the the net switching. It tends to come in in big lumps at the top. And for those funds, I mean, they are what they're doing in the competitive market that they're operating in is it's very difficult for them to make money out of multiple arbitrage, despite the fact that it's the point that they have done. But you couldn't underwrite that as a strategy going forward. You'd have to underwrite the value creation piece, the operating potential bit. And what that meant is that those those funds have increasingly said this it's becoming a sort of a game for experts. We better figure through sectors in, in secular areas where we can find long-term trends that we can capitalize on, industries that are fragmented where we can create relative scale through rolling up a vertical, um, and the muscles and the toolkits to do this to do all that. So you want to have a sort of a sense of where you're playing and how you're playing there, and then have the capability and toolkit to, to be able to drive things to the optimum point of value creation. And then again, you know, only asset class where the insiders make the liquidity decisions, time your time your moment to get off. Um, uh, and that at a scale that's what's happening. Now, if you go down down to smaller funds being smaller tickets, now that there's a slightly different game of foot there, 
which is actually that there's more opportunity to buy smaller businesses at lower prices and build and build scale through either organic means or inorganic and actually create a, a fundamentally more valuable company from a multiple perspective. You get the second lever of it that you wouldn't get so much in the big deals. They can still do that. I think that the, the challenge that is there is just the, the deployment of capital challenge, which is as as you know, if if you sort of go future back five years from now, we're not a six trillion dollar industry; it's twelve. Then you know that 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 what does that mean if you just think about the market dynamics? Then well, either the, the current funds that are the large funds are going to have to get a lot larger, or there's going to have to be an explosion of small ones. And and actually that that each of those things is challenging, but in a different way. But I would I would probably bet on the large ones getting larger. Um, than the small market exploding and tripling in size, which is how you have to do it the other way around. I think that would just become relatively inevitable to do that, to be honest. But anyway, that, that's going to probably help. I think it might work in my point. Yeah, thanks, Jim. You know, really interesting uh, insight there in, into how the, the, the industry and managers are positioning themselves. Moose, just to, just to pick up again on, on that question of, of, of the safe pair of hands, um, I, I know it's a theme that, that, that we've spoken about before. What is your sense on, on, on where the LPs are on, on risk and, and you know, what are their expectations of, of a manager? Are they looking to deploy larger amounts of capital with a bigger manager? Um, as Jim suggested, the, the pathway seems to be headed and, and that manager is you know, much safer, known entity, reduces downside risk and, and, and that's what the investors want rather than you know, a firebrand mid-market firm, which is really exciting, but but it could be a bit more of a, a volatile ride. Right. Uh, I'm going to do the big scene. I'm going to do a particular region that has something exceptional. And then I'm going to go down to the granularity of what's in a portfolio. So the big scene, it's a drive to safety. And, and like I mentioned, it started in 2019. What does this mean? It means um, consistent returns, regular deployment, principal protection, um, and there's a comfort that the larger funds are able to satisfy that need. But most investors nowadays have in the construction of their portfolio, a primary component and a direct component, a co-invest component. So one of the driving factors also to help manage the net returns that they're targeting is uh, this proportion of directs that are part of the portfolio. Some pension plans, it's 50-50, um, uh, you know, so it, it's quite a significant change in the mentality. One of the things is our industry is nascent, it's fluid, so things move. And as a result, the larger funds are able to give more co-invest. So when you package it all together, um, you know, it, the market is heading in that direction. Now, the interesting point here, and one that Jim's touched on, is the larger funds, the mega funds, as I like calling them, have this dynamic to them. The mid-market funds can outperform the larger mega funds, but there's volatility in their performance. And so the question is, do you want to take that volatility in these times, or do you just want to have that safety? And so there is an element here, and Jim, kick in, uh, you know, with, with pleasure, but there's an element here of the investors wanting to go to the larger funds. However, we have the U.S. market. The U.S. market has the largest breadth. It has the largest depth. And in the U.S. market, the mega funds are doing a good job. 
the larger mid-cap funds are doing a good job. The mid-cap funds are doing a good job. The lower mid-cap funds are doing a good job. The tiny mid-cap funds are doing a good job with the tiny funds. The whole spectrum. And that's why the average investor today, if you exclude some domestic criteria for their portfolio construction, is 70 to 80% US. And the US is just taking all the money. Now going to the next level down, uh, Jim uses the word value and he uses it in being able to do something with his money or with an investor's money. And I, that I think is the context of the definition of that. But within that, private equity firms invest in two types of companies, growth companies and value companies. And right now, growth companies, we're seeing more and more of them appearing in portfolios because we're seeing more and more technology appearing across the spectrum in portfolios. And we're seeing private equity firms, whether they're tiny people or large people, focusing more into this whole digitalization and what that all means to them. And so all of a sudden, private equity firms that aren't digitizing are actually in the, currently at the moment lagging those that have. And those that have have turned into growth stories and their numbers are starting to rock and roll. And so, um, you know, it, it's becoming an interesting market. And um, Jim, I don't know if you have a view to that kind of dynamic that's going on now, because I think we both agree on the core position, but, but there's, yeah. some, there's some breakouts that are taking place all of a sudden. You know, private equity firms that were average, all of a sudden had made this transformation and they're just flying, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, growth's an interesting thing. Um, because what is it? So, because uh, effectively you've got you've got growth in in private equity, you've got growth. Come back to that, and you've got sort of venture capital. And the way I was sort of rationalising it is some combination of is the market defined, is the business model defined, and is the company free cash flow positive at the operating level to try and articulate what actually is where. So basically, you've got. Uh, a whole bunch of tech-focused private equity firms that are growth, right? They're, but, they're, but they're established businesses, they're, they're in defined markets with established businesses and they're free cash flow positive. And what they are doing there is, is, is capitalizing on the secular trend around things like software. You know, so, so like Mark Anderson's it's gonna eat the world paradigm. Um, now, I mean, my inner control freak being consultant goes that great for me because I love markets. Because I, can, I understand markets. I can think about what a market is doing, how it's growing, why it's growing. I can understand the relative competitive position of a company within it and how it could be changed and how it could be optimized, what levers it could pull. Um, and clearly the business is a cash flow positive company, so there's no structural risk to it from that perspective. Now that, that for me is like I sleep at night because the value, the value that's being created there, the, the, the parameters are pretty clearly defined and articulated and I can understand them. Um, Growth, not quite the same. Market's not defined. So the, the company business model is defined and it's probably free cash flow positive, but the market's not because it's a disruptive tech uh, or disruptive business model by nature. And the interesting thing with that is value set by the marginal buyer. So in established markets, it's easier, much easier to get a handle on what something's worth because of the nature of the market. And in growth markets, it's not. You can't. So the, the, you're, you're exposed to this exogenous risk, and those are words that terrify me from an investment perspective. Um, and you have this bigger exogenous risk. And while it all works, it's all awesome, but the 
value could, could fall very materially and actually nothing fundamentally shifts at the business level. Um, and that's a risky thing. Uh, and then as you move sort of into venture, then you've got, you know, that you, you basically, the, for the most part, the business model is improved. So you've got the market's not established and the business model's not proven, then you probably have the free cash flow going negative and the operating levels are a whole different ballgame again. And again, value set exogenously by the marginal buyer. Now, the, the challenge um, out there, I think, is growth a good thing. So, um, you know, the, the, this na and the nature of like private equity investing into these secular channels where the growth is evident because of the, the drivers that are within it, and they've, they've migrated towards that. So, there's a lot of growth being done around private equity, and there's an increasing amount of growth being done in pure growth. Uh, and the challenge is, how is that going to play? Because all these all these companies are going to make it. So there's a there's at the moment they are seemingly all making it, but they won't all make it. That that's not how markets work. But nobody really knows who's going to win, and that's quite risky. So I I find it all very interesting around you know you have to be very clear on the definition of what you think growth is, and then think about how you bucket the risk up because some of the risk is exogenous and you can't model it, and and therefore you just have to be aware of the potential downside because at the moment it all looks amazing, but that's terrifying. Yeah, that's, that's my thing. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Yeah, again, just really interesting, interesting insight. Um, yeah, let's uh, move on to to another question, possibly uh, sort of related in in, in some respects. Um, but Jim, I wanted to ask you about this this question of of operational diligence, and and by that I mean sort of assessing the governance processes, infrastructure, reporting of a manager. You know, almost as much as you are, are, are looking at the returns track record and, and, and the investment proposition. And, you know, are, is the investor market in a position now where, where an investor will actually sort of put more, more importance on, well, how, how does this, this entity actually work? How is it structured? Who's in charge? How does it create and deliver deals? As much as it'll say, oh, well, this is a great manager. You know, we, we, we've had two or three funds that have performed really well. Um, and, you know, will an investor ever sort of look at a manager that's had a great track record, but actually say, I'm not sure about this because if you look at the leadership or, or the talent or, or the infrastructure, it's not where we would like it to be. Um, yeah. Th does that make sense? Yeah. Big topic. Um, so we've got wholly separate team. So you know, we, we have an investment team which is sort of reviewing the premise um, trying to form an investment view. And the ODD team is, is, is completely separated. They both report to the investment committee and they've both got to say yes, um, or else it won't happen. Um, because the, the, the sort of table stakes continue to rise and the bar that, that is, is set around the standards of governance in multiple, multiple dimensions um, is, is quite a high bar and it, it, it's a moving bar. Um, and so, you know, that, that is, yeah, that is everywhere now, I'd say. I mean, most, most sophisticated investors have, have some sort of dual track investment ODD team, and they, we separate them for obvious reasons, which is the investment team has got a natural bias that like things that, or to want to support things that it wants to do. The ODD team has none of that. So we have called it separate. It's quite, I think it's quite, it's quite onerous for the GPs, um, because they, they do get, they do get bombarded ever more so. Um, you know, the, the, the DD request is like Hotel California. Things go in, but they never come out. So the, 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 the requests keep getting bigger, 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 bigger. Um, but it, it is actually fundamental to the whole review. Um, 
and you can't you can't um, not do it. I think you know what our perspective on is we try and be really um, supportive in ODD. So um, you know what what we typically do is sort of do the full drains up review and then go you know this stuff's all best class best in class globally be, be best defined practice. This stuff's all not quite best practice, but hey, this is what best practice looks like. And this stuff is you know if you find it red light, you, know, you can't we can't do that. You can't do that. You've got to you've got to do something different, um, or else you just can't project progress it. And actually the the idea um, you can weaponize it to some extent because you basically say you know when we, when we do that we basically say you know if you if you're one of our GPs you're part of our family and actually you know there's a whole accumulated experience that sits in our network which none of it's competitively sensitive because it's all about operational best practice not commercial um, and we'll share that with you so you know there's a sort of a deck sitting in house lean around how do you do cyber because we've seen everybody doing it and you have a sense of what a really good looks like and if you're uh, you know, a GP in um, in the middle of in the middle of um, America or bigger market, middle of Europe. How how are you ever going to know? You're not. So here's an advantage to being a partner with us is we'll share that with you and it's a free and gratis and it makes you a better manager. Um, Moose, when when did this this point or, or or the importance put on on operational due due diligence really, you know, start taking hold and, and become a real you know, yes or no, uh, deciding factor for for an LP, and and does it go back to you know a lot of what you were speaking about earlier about you know safe pair of hands, manage the downside risk, um, etc. I I think it all deals with good practice, and so um, it it originally emerged um, with kind of uh, ESG. And so I remember um, the initial ESG reports that were produced by the Dutch and the French investors, a general partner could only fill in 10, 20% of it. <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was a guideline, right? But then um, that started making investors think, um, uh, as you know, they have various organizations, they have discussions on, right? Um, on like, um, you know, how are these people running the business if they can't answer certain questions? Uh, you know, and um, and then you know th there were discussions on uh, gender and diversity, and all, all these things start coming together. And so, um, as this kind of um, you know theme of like, how are you running your business? And then um, you know, back in the early two thousands, um, you know, to be honest with you, in the early part of the two thousand pre the financial crisis, you know, if you tattooed PE on you, people gave you money, right? Um, and the newer markets, um, you know, the fresh, fresh, I mean, the, the, the industries, as Jim said, is only 30 years old, but those, those countries that were less than 10 years old in, in terms of PE markets, um, we're getting a ton of money put into them. The development banks were trying to put in like a lot of controls. And again, they were using the term ESG. And so, um, but there was this plurifa of, of money going into these new markets and it was, um, and it was faster then actually uh, the governance was growing. And, and it wasn't only the developing markets, but we're actually seeing this in, in developed countries or other, other countries too that are popular, or in GPs, to the point that Jim made earlier, the industry is about uh, you know, six trillion and it fits BlackRock, but what happens when the industry becomes 15 trillion? And the volume of capital going into the industry, because it generates the higher return right now in a portfolio construction, uh, is just gonna keep increasing. So how does this work? So um, a light went off into the system. And in this young industry, the investors were like, hey, how do you run your business? 
Um, and interestingly enough, most private equity GPs run their businesses on a flat cash basis, right? Uh, right? And so uh, they're not, they don't run them as profit centers. So this whole kind of thinking came through. Now, this, the ODD, as Jim mentioned, is still in its early days. And I have to say, you know, um, if I take a, a fundraising uh, and a fundraising has three legs to it, a commercial diligence, um, a legal diligence, and an ODD diligence. Um, the ODD diligence seems to be dwarfing the other two combined at the moment. And, um, and then all different, uh, there isn't a consistency to how it's being approached. So some people use color codings. So like, you know, Nicholas, you've got uh, four greens, three yellows and one red, you're a decline. What does that mean? But should I be giving you a chance to fix the yellows and the red uh, or not, right? Um, but, you know, where did that come from, you know? And so, um, and then, you know, and then uh, I allow you to fix it, you fix it with me, the next group comes in and they have another problem with you, right? And so there's, there's this real kind of change going on. It's transformative. I think it's in a good direction. Um, but, um, you know, for the general partners who are in the market currently, um, especially, um, you know, in the mid-market kind of smaller funds, it, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work that's coming in. Jim, I, if I could just come back to you on, on some of those points that, that Moose raised. You know, how do you go about um, assessing, you know, things like the leadership, the, the talent management? Um, you know, private equity is a broad church. You've got some firms that have got, you know, eat what you kill or, you know, a very tight investment committee. You have other firms where it's very consensual um, and, and everybody sits on the investment committee. And, yeah. and how do you sort of benchmark that? Because I guess if you've got a returns track record, you, you can benchmark that across your historic invest, investments across the industry. But how do you benchmark something like leadership, succession planning, you know, deal attribution, people management? Um, yeah, have you got a framework there or, or is this still something that is developing as, as Moose you know, sketched out for us? Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's a soft spot. I mean, and something I'm personally very interested in. Um, and I think you know, there's a sort of a behavioural bias around this a little bit as well, which is you know, the data, as the data becomes a, a prevalent and pervasive and everywhere, you run to it because data is comforting, right? Everyone can drive an Excel sheet, more or less. Um, but it doesn't actually give you the whole picture uh, because it's all about humans. And, and actually, you need to have a sense of how to understand that and how to relatively rank and at least have a sense of what you're getting. Uh, and actually, LPs are really bad at that in my opinion. Um, and, and I actually, I'm very interested in it. And one, one of my uh, old buddies um, works for a place called GH Smart, so shameless plug for them. Um, and this is what they do. They help, they help private equity make better decisions about leadership and talent. Uh, and so he and I are, are, are secretly squirreling away in the background trying to figure out if we can do this in a better way. Uh, and actually, to, to, be, to give full credit, the original idea for this came from a guy called Neil Harper, who did it a long, long time ago. Um, and he wrote an article um, which is called "Taking um, Taking Aim at Gut Feel," I think is the name of it. Which is, you know, how how we, how we've done this historically has been gut feel, and it's just bonkers that we don't have a better way of doing it. Because if you think about the way the interactions work, um, it, it's pretty superficial. Um, I mean, it's interesting as well, you know, with, with having been at it a while and have a lot of, a lot of old colleagues and friends who are probably working in GPs. If you 
get him in the pub over a drink and ask him what they think about the diligence process, or at least the, the, the person interaction, they'll have a quiet giggle at you, really, and say, really? That's how you do it? Um, so there's a lot to do on that, and, and you know, we're only in the beginning. And I mean, you can't, you can't make the computer say yes, but there has to be a better way um, of asking, asking questions in a systematic and thoughtful way, and even thinking about the way you create the interaction. Is it one-to-one, one-to-few, one-to-many? How you triangulate the answers to, to tease out the insights, and you know, and then all of that aside, you know, I I think about a little. I have the Jim's little pyramid principle, which is basically when I'm looking at talent, the three three points of the pyramid are leadership, talent, and then structures and processes. So, um, talent in private equity is his, is his biggest attribute and his biggest problem because all the people are great. And if they weren't great, they would not be there. So then it becomes a how do you make relative talent assessment a bunch of bunch amongst a bunch of very very good people? Answer with great difficulty. Um, the structure and processes bit is interesting. That talks to your point around different org models because you know prior equity can be anything from a um, a complete band of equals to a benign dictatorship that's not that benign. Um, and different models work. They just have to operate in different ways, and it has to be transparent how they operate. Um, people need to know how they fit in, basically, uh, to the model. So there's a sense of you, know, you must you must have your model, uh, and you must be able to you know, at least be aware enough to articulate what it is. And then you you, you build your model, you build your pyramid out relative to the model that you want, and then it has to be transparent. And I mean, I have a I have a one GP up in the Nordics who is also me also me a real benchmark for this around. Um, his firm is so transparent that even from the get go, he was able to explain this is how we work. This is how we operate. This is the pyramid. This is how you move through it. This is what the deal looks like as you move through it. Oh, and by the way, this is how I move through it. I'm the managing partner, so my my relative role is going to change over time. My relative share of the cake is going to change over time, and that's all clear. And he's, he's had that for years, and I've always, it's always struck me as you know, that is a very thoughtful and sensible way to organize. And what that meant is he's been really, really good at attracting really, really good talent and keeping it because they know where they all stand in the model. And then the final bit is about the top leadership, which is the, the hardest thing to figure out. And, uh, you know, it's it's like love. You kind of, you know it when it's there, but it's quite difficult to articulate what it is. Um, and I mean, all, all, I think you, know, you can sort of break it down into some elements of, you know, for me anyway, you know, I, I look at, you know, does this place have clear, clearly articulated vision and values and behaviors and operating principles? And is it, does it translate down all the way through the organization? Is everybody aware of what they are? Um, and I mean, it, it goes back to, you know, when, when I was doing consulting projects and it was amazing how that made a difference. I remember working in a supermarket industry. Um, the two players, an insurgent and an incumbent, and the um, um, the interesting thing around the incumbent was you could ask anybody from the chief exec to the people on the shop floor what the five core values of the company were, and they could all recite them instantly. Also, that it was completely pervasive; they all knew where they stood, uh, and what behaviour was was sort of how that company operated, um, and the other the other one couldn't. And, you know, they, they struggle to they struggle to make it work. So that, that's always been a thing for me. But that is really hard, frankly. Um, but it's a sort of a you know, working progress. Moose, you you wanted to come in there? Please please go ahead. 
Yeah, because I mean, it's really interesting and, in, you know, um, being in the industry from its nascent time, um, when we first started in the business, there wasn't as many, uh, there wasn't as much choice. And there were a lot of first time funds, of course, and a lot of people were captive to large institutions. But uh, the way that you made your commitment was to spend time. So the, the average fundraise, the average investor was uh, 10, 12 meetings, sometimes more. And it wasn't just, um, you know, come to the office, you got an hour, I've got another meeting coming up. No, 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 no. We're going to play golf. We're going to go out into a golf course and we're going to walk around for six hours. These were not like, you know, the types of meetings that we're seeing today. Right. And then you start getting a feel for the person. Am I comfortable with this person? And that's how the commitments were made. Now, back in the 90s, a lot of commitments came from banks, and the banks were trying to get business. <laughs> so people were able to raise money quite straightforwardly. But if you wanted to get the money from the pensions or the insurance companies, um, you know, you had to go, or the endowments or the foundations, you have to go through this dance. And um, to me, um, you know, it's become more difficult because there's all this, like, um, you know, budgets and, um, you know, you can't have a dinner anymore. You can't do a lunch. Uh, there's all these constraints that have come in. And, um, you know, there's all these vendor packs that are being created. Everyone, the work's all being done for the in investor. And, you know, um, when I look at some of the funds, you know, recently, it's, you know, three meetings on average, per, you know, per investor. Um, you know, there might be calls and other little things like, you know, uh, being done in terms of um, specifics, but, but, you know, in, in terms of that initial period. And, um, you know, this just makes it very hard because I don't think there's any software or artificial intelligence, intelligence that will necessarily capture that initial feel, um, uh, you know, at this point. And, you know, if someone can do that, um, I would, you know, I would support them in, in trying uh, to do that. But that's really in the realm of artificial intelligence, because right now, you know, most of the processes that I'm experiencing are just purely statistical, you know, tick box, tick box, tick box, list, 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 list of questions. And, um, you know, somewhere in there, to, to Jim's point, there is a triangle and you, you've got to make a judgment. And that, that only comes by knowing people. And that's one of the problems is first time funds become more and more difficult to raise uh, because, you know, uh, people have their core portfolios. Uh, people have their core relationships. When I, when I first started, you know, people could have 100, 120 GP relations. Today, it's more like 40 to 60 going to 30 to 40, right? But what does that mean, right? And what does that mean to performance? Because we talked about some of the smaller people can perform better, right? So that, you know, so we're kind of going into this new wave. But the point of the question right now that you have, um, you know, this personal touch, I would like to see it come back, but I don't know how, because you can't entertain, you can't go for walks. Uh, so um, anyway, I, I, we'll see what the industry comes up with. It, it's a clever one. Yeah, Moose. I mean, Jim, Moose. Thanks. It's so fascinating how how the soft stuff is is so important, and and also just interesting how the industry goes about trying to to codify that in in, in some kind of way. But 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 obviously a very elusive and tricky thing to do. All right, I'm conscious. Um, We've, we've been chatting away and there was one more thing I wanted to squeeze in bef before, we, before we wrap. And, and, and this is something that has come up in the conversation uh, previously. It's around the mid-market and the mega funds. Um, uh, Jim, and maybe if I could put this to you, I mean, what is your view on, on, on the theory that, that investors are increasingly pivoting towards larger managers, 
with the multi-strategy platforms um, and they are, as Moose just uh, mentioned, sort of looking to reduce the number of, of GP relationships. And if that theory holds, where does that leave your single strategy, single country mid-market manager of which there are still uh, you know, a large number across Europe who, who are performing well, but almost been kind of left behind in some ways because everybody's clustered around you know, the big pan-regional, you know, pan-platform uh, uh, managers. Um, you know, so Jim, how do you filter for that? And, and, and where do you, you know, direct your capital between mid and, and, and mega? Yeah, interesting one. I, mean, I think, you know, taking a face back, the, the, you start this from what are the needs of the customers? Um, and they evolve and they continue to evolve um, because effectively, you know, the, the, the customers push capital into things which meet the needs that they have. Um, and I think you know, what that's meant as the industry's grown and continues to grow is that the customers need to deploy ever larger amounts of capital um, to, to achieve a rate of return which is consistent with their goals. And so it, it's sort of the, you know, would you rather have the highest return on a pound or the return that you require on a hundred pounds? Because it's a two, there's like two slightly different questions, really. And as the industry grows, it's it's becoming B or A. Um, and well, at least for for those entrants which have got lots of capital to deploy. So I think what I'm really trying to say in a long a long winded typical me answer is actually the needs of the customers are bifurcating, and therefore you're seeing um, the the larger groups which have and because of the, the the holy grail I think the holy grail of this whole thing is a repeatable model that scales. And the larger groups have got a repeatable model that scales, that delivers what the customers want in a form that they are willing to accept. And therefore that X and Y will come together quite nicely on that and they, they grow and they will continue to grow. Um, interesting strategic questions for the GPs and all of this, but frankly, the, you know, that, that ship's sailed and will keep sailing and probably doesn't stop anytime soon. Interesting question is like what's what's behind. So I mean I think you know Moose is more fine on this because they're better positioned than I am. But one of the challenges of Europe has been we've really struggled to get a graduating class. So if you think most of the big pan-European groups were born from banks and created pan-European from the get-go. So they've had this ability to operate all across Europe, which has given them a big market to play in a big total addressable market, which allows them to scale very rapidly and therefore grow to you know a significant extent. Most of the funds that get established tend to be stuck in a country market and struggle to get out of it. So you've seen some, but there's not many. If you think you're probably in Europe, say there's 700 funds, there's probably, you know, in two hands, you could count the ones that have successfully grown outside of their core market. Um, and the reason is that you did certainly, you know, prevailing wisdom and um, logic was that it, it was a local business. And so actually local knowledge became, it was imperative, that's how you won. Um, very difficult to out local or local if you're not local. So very difficult to move from Germany to France and win in Paris if you don't happen to be German. So how, would, how would that work? Uh, and that has prevailed and that meant that local funds have stayed, typically stayed local for the most part and therefore they've not been a repeatable model that scales. So they've solved the need for a certain kind of customer, but, but that customer is not, is not the one that's going to continue to put gazillions into private markets because that's not what they do. Um, and then what you've just begun to see is a sort of paradigm shift a little bit where it's becoming more relevant what you know than who you know. Um, so you're seeing like the domain knowledge 
theme which has really driven and drives the major large funds begin to sort of slip back into the smaller ones. So you're beginning to see, you know, financial services funds, a few healthcare funds, a few tech funds, a few the obvious verticals where domain knowledge works. And those and those smaller funds are able to go cross border and because that matches more than being Dutch. Um, and if that works, then we might see more, and that will increase this universe of, of available opportunities for for that customer group that needs the model that scales because it needs to deploy more and more capital to meet its own internal needs. I think that's how it plays. I don't know how this reacts to that, but I guess that. So I think you know, there's still plenty of people to fund small funds, but they just might look very different to the ones that fund the big ones, and they're looking for a different thing. Okay, yeah, really interesting, Jim, and maybe just two things that, that I'd be interested for your take on Moose with this idea that um, uh, Europe has sort of clustered around its local markets for, for the reasons Jim outlined, but also interesting how that almost becomes, seems to be not as valuable, you know, it doesn't matter if you have an office in Amsterdam or Frankfurt or whatever, it's if you know about software as a service, then you can take your skills wherever you are, and that, and that local engagement with the advisor community or, or you know management teams that you've been been meeting is is almost less valuable than it was so, i mean j j just wrapping that all up well, what is the future for for the european mid-market fund can you still survive if you're just going to be single country single fund um or or is there scope for that that class to sort of graduate as as jim described you know it's basically the united states is a large homogeneous market I mean, there are some differences between different regions in the country. Europe is a very fragmented, extremely separated. Um, there's a common theme to Europe, but they are different people. And in some countries in Europe, like in Spain, the different regions are very different. The Basque are very different from the Catalans. And so, um, so this fragmentation is what creates the opportunity in Europe. Um, and so in the United States, you've got scalability and in Europe, you, you've got transformation. And so there is an ability for um, local groups doing local work and making great returns. You know, I, I look at a couple of our clients historically in Germany. These are small funds. They, they're German and they're just doing a fantastic job. Um, and, um, you know, I look at certain uh, parts of Europe, you know, certain countries outperform other countries consistently. It, it's, you know, it's a, there's a certain culture, there's a certain level of management, there's a certain level of opportunity, there's a certain approach to business. And so the, the nuance here is where is the money? And so, <laughs> you know, if, if the large inv uh, investors you know, have the ability to move the needle, require them to deploy X amount, they can't find these little jewels anymore. Um, you, know, uh, um, you know, if, um, you know, everyone's using the same model to create their portfolios and primary is 50%, directs are 30%, secondaries are 20%, that's not that much primary money. And then you want to have those co-invest and those direct investments. So then you've got to polarize towards the GPs that provide that for you. Uh, the secondaries you probably outsource. So by default, we just have less and less money available.
And it's a very interesting question, Nicholas. So when we did a first time fund country specific in Europe uh, uh, five years ago, uh, you know, we did one in the UK and one in Spain. I would say 60 to 80% of the money came out of the United States. Wild. Um, now that's completely reversed. So the bulk of the money comes from uh, Europe. But if we have a mega fund or a large fund in our particular region um, that is in a particular calendar year, it's extremely hard to extract the capital. Because the, the average investors say, oh, I gave these guys you know, 200 million euros. <laughs> I'm not going to do the small guy, right? Um, which, again, is very different from when I was back in the 2000s when portfolios were built and people had more relationships. They were open to segmentation in terms of um, risk and return profile in their portfolios. But now they're not. So, you know, um, and prior to that, before that period, um, there was a lot of domestic capital because a lot of investors were not regulated to be able to go outside their countries or some cluster around their countries, right? And so as, um, you know, so now, you know, you, you can go outside your country, you're looking for opportunities, you're looking to concentrate your deployment, you're looking for certain portfolio structure, you're looking, that means you need to make larger commitments to the point that Jim was making before. And so you're just whole heading in one direction. Um, but these talents are still there. You know, we're involved with them. You know, other people also raise um, in these first-time funds in Europe, you know, that are local, um, and they perform extremely well. But it, it is hard to get money. So when we get these opportunities and they come to us, we tell them it'll be a two-year fundraise, at least, and just get used to it, right? And again, we, we try to be like, you know, work with friends and family. We try to do deal by deal first to get a bit of a track record going and a bit of momentum. But we do have to take our time. And we do have to work through different calendar years to just avoid congestion in the marketplace. Uh, Moose, thanks. Really interesting. And um, look, I think we're, we're pushing time now. So I think we'll wrap it there. I'm sure we could easily talk for another hour. But I'd just like to say a huge thank you to, to Jim for coming on. You know, really interesting listening to, to your thoughts on the market. Um, great to have you. And, and Moose, as always, uh, you know, real pleasure. And, and, and thank you for for your time and thank you to everybody for listening. Goodbye.